0: We get to begin a new sermon series this morning in the book of Proverbs. We'll be looking at the first nine chapters of Proverbs over the the next few months through the course of the summer. But before we get into introducing the book and looking at the text this morning, I wanted to kind of set the stage this morning with a bit of a problem that the church faces, perhaps not just in our generation, but it is certainly among us in our generation. And the book of Proverbs can uniquely help us with this problem, and it's the problem that's often been identified as anti-intellectualism in the church. Anti-intellectualism can look a couple of different ways, and this has been a present problem for the church, at least in this country, throughout my lifetime, and perhaps a little bit beyond. Uh, it's not necessarily distinctive of every single church, so I'm not necessarily pointing any fingers here or saying that our church is characterized by this. But there's always a temptation to push against using our minds in this culture. And for Christians, that's a strange thing. And it shows up in the church a couple of different ways. One way that it can show up is how we, we might have a tendency to swing the pendulum in the other way and say, well, thinking And concentrating and studying doesn't matter. It's all about experience and emotion. That's one way that anti-intellectualism has marked the church in my generation. That feelings become more important than the content of your faith. And the other way that it often shows up is in our own individual experience, we can be um, a little bit hard on ourselves. We can say things like, you know, I'm just not smart enough. To be a Christian or to study the Bible. I'm just not very smart. And I want to just remind us all that your IQ doesn't have much to do with your Christian life. The fact of the matter is the revelation that's been given to us in the Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the promise in the Scripture is that it's the Holy Spirit who grants understanding, it's the Holy Spirit who grants insight, it's the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom. And so, whether, whatever your IQ numbers are, however intellectual or however smart you think you are or you think somebody else is, there are no barriers here for you when it comes to engaging with God's Word. God meets with you where you are in the Scriptures. Now, that calls on you and challenges all of us to get our face in the book. God doesn't promise to zap us with wisdom apart from engagement with his word. He does not promise that. And so what we're going to look at as we open the book of Proverbs in particular is what we see throughout the scriptures, that there's truth here, there's wisdom here for your life that's offered to you personally. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Therefore, you have what it takes. You have the decisive component. So don't hinder yourself by saying, I'm just not smart enough, so I won't go to that Bible study. I won't sit under that teaching. I won't listen to more preaching and teaching because I don't really need that. That's where this anti-intellectualism tendency takes us, is, you know, I don't really need to go deeper. I don't really need to know more. In fact, it's often a symptom of anti-intellectualism when a passage, a line, actually, from a verse in First Corinthians 8 is often quoted out of context. Knowledge puffs up. And I've had that line quoted at me by people who say, you know, you study too much. You, you, you know too much, and it's bad for you. And so you take that phrase out of its context, and you say, you know, it's dangerous to know more. Well, the book of Proverbs is going to push that down into the ground and bury it with a shovel. And so we want to be careful about taking that line out of context. There is a danger with accumulating more knowledge. It can inflate our pride, but it doesn't have to, and it's not supposed to. It's a gift of God's grace. So don't reject it. Don't push it out in your own experience. Instead, embrace it and say, I want more. I know that I need more and I'm going to go after it because it's on offer here for all of you, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey and no matter where you are in your intellectual manner of thinking. That doesn't matter. Now, an author and Christian apologist named Tim Barnett recently said, if you want to know the mind of God, you need to learn to use your own. He's, he's echoing his own mentor, uh, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, who once wrote, Our churches are filled with Christians who are idling in intellectual neutral. As Christians, their minds are going to waste. One result of this is an immature, superficial faith. People who simply ride the roller coaster of emotional experience are cheating themselves out of a deeper and richer Christian faith by neglecting the intellectual side of that faith. You know, Jesus himself repeatedly reiterated a summary of God's law. And that summary we often summarize simply as love God and love your neighbor. But a summary of a summary can often leave out too much. And it's important that we remember as Jesus gave that summary... What we call the Great Commandment or the Greatest Commandment. He was giving it to Jewish people who knew their Bibles really, really well. And when he told them that Greatest Commandment, they could have told him and immediately would have known which specific verses he was quoting from the Old Testament. A part of the Greatest Commandment is to love God with all your mind. All your mind the mind that God gave you. Love the Lord your God with your whole, entire, complete mind. All of it. Wherever it is. Whatever information it has. Whatever skill level it has. Love the Lord with what you've been given in your mind. All of it. Every bit of it. Studying the book of Proverbs can help you with this. In fact, studying the book of Proverbs can be a way of obeying this greatest command at least in part. So let's begin to look at this great wisdom book, the book of Proverbs. So we want to introduce the book of Proverbs, sketch out some background to this book. Let's begin by looking at the heading, the title, as it were, in verse 1 of chapter 1. Proverbs one one, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Solomon, we're familiar with, king of Israel after David, and... We remember that King Solomon was known for his wisdom. Famously, in 1 Kings chapter 3, he asked the Lord for wisdom. But that, that wasn't his initiative, you remember. The Lord appeared to him in a dream and offered to him, ask for whatever you want. And we get his request in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9 Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And then down in verse 11 of 1 Kings 3, the Lord summarized what Solomon had requested as understanding to discern what is right. And in verse 12, the Lord told him, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Now, we know that that statement in verse 12 is a figure of speech. It is an exaggeration, it's a hyperbole, because we know very specifically and precisely there was one man at least who came after Solomon who was like him, but much greater. And we'll see him in just a bit. Solomon's wisdom, if you remember the rest of the story, Solomon's wisdom was tested when the two mothers came to him. Solomon's wisdom was later demonstrated in the organization of his kingdom, the establishment of peace with all of their international neighbors, and the oversight of the construction of the temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. Solomon's wisdom was admired by dignitaries such as the Queen of Sheba. But eventually Solomon's wisdom was abandoned as he married many foreign women, which the Mosaic law forbade, and he began worshiping the false gods his wives introduced to him. The sad line of 1 Kings 11.3 casts a shadow over Solomon's legacy and his wives turned away his heart. Nevertheless, we do have a legacy of wisdom from King Solomon. 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that he spoke 3,000 proverbs. What's a proverb? A very boring but accurate definition from a hermeneutics textbook goes like this. Proverbs are typically short, pithy sayings that express general truth in a memorable and catchy manner. Yep, that's right. Author Dan Phillips, who is also a pastor in Houston, Texas, has written a book entitled God's Wisdom in Proverbs. And it's not a commentary of the book. It's a, an overarching study, and I, I highly recommend it to you. I think we have one copy in the church library. It's an excellent study. But he has a way with words that I think Solomon would appreciate. He defines a proverb as an adage without paddage. He also wisely warns that, quote, "...proverbs convey pithy points and principles, not precious particular promises." So, the proverbs are what we find actually starting in chapter 10. Proverbs in these short, memorable, catchy, pithy sayings don't start until chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs. You see, there's more than just proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. And the Proverbs of Solomon don't actually start until chapter 10. And chapter 10, verse 1, will give us another heading that says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, And so we see those sketching out from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 24. And then there's more larger blocks of teaching after that. And then some more of the smaller, typical things we think of as Proverbs afterward. So if if Solomon, according to 1 Kings 4.32, spoke 3,000 Proverbs... It's interesting to notice that the book of Proverbs only has 915 verses. So if each verse was a proverb, which it's not, we only have 915 of them. So we have far less than 915 Proverbs of Solomon. In fact, we have far fewer than one-third of all of the the Proverbs Solomon apparently spoke. The first nine chapters, which we're going to focus our attention on, aren't Proverbs. The heading of verse 1 that we're looking at covers the whole book, and we need to acknowledge here that Solomon didn't write all of this. Solomon didn't write all of the words of the book of Proverbs. He, made, he began this collection, but he didn't finish it. He didn't write every single word himself. And there's a lot more than just Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. So I want you to take a look at this outline on the screen. If you were in ABF a few weeks ago, you've seen this. We'll look at this very briefly. The Book of Proverbs breaks down into seven sections. It's got seven headings that break things down into this structure here. And they're broken down several times by a different mention of a name, a person's name. Solomon a couple of different times. And what we learn from this is that the book of Proverbs grew over time. Solomon collected and started this collection and it became a part of inspired scripture. So the Holy Spirit used Solomon to speak some of these words, but also to gather some of these proverbial sayings from other places and other people. And then later, about 250 years later, in fact, uh, in Proverbs 25, we see a mention of more of Solomon's Proverbs added to this collection by Hezekiah. So we're talking 250 years after Solomon, King Hezekiah has scribes that find a collection of Solomon's Proverbs that haven't yet been connected with this biblical book, and they say, you know, we ought to add those in. Those are really good, too. And, of course, they're operating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they're designed, they're intended by God to pull these things together as a reflection of God's wisdom. And so the book develops along those lines. The final two chapters, which some would look at as kind of a prologue to the, I mean, an epilogue to the book, are written by Gentiles. Agur, son of Jache, and King Lemuel, or his mother, ever words are reflected in chapter 31, those are Gentiles. So you have Gentile authors of Scripture. Solomon started the collection, but he didn't finish it. Either way, it doesn't really matter who wrote the individual words. We recognize this as a reflection of God's Word. God communicating through these different human agents to give us a reflection of true divine wisdom. So we're going to focus our attention over the next few months of chapters 1 through 9. They contain longer teaching units. They're all in poetic form. And they're framed largely as parents' instruction to their children. Adolescent children is the focus, particularly. And sons, specifically. So we're going to see the address, listen, my son, multiple times in these nine chapters. But let's not think that these words and these pictures of wisdom don't have relevance for older people and younger children, and men and women also. They certainly do. They have universal application. And so we will see how that works out pretty clearly along the way. So much of the instruction of the book of Proverbs is rooted in earlier Scripture. That's another thing to remember here. Uh, Even though Solomon has collected these wise sayings, and he apparently spoke them in these poetic, memorable forms... He spoke them out of a mind that had already become shaped by the scriptures because he's the king of Israel and the king of Israel is supposed to write down a copy of the law for themselves, read in it every day of their life. It seems like Solomon must have done that at least some. And so whatever's included in this book fits with God's law, with God's word, as it's reflected in earlier scripture. So we're going to see a lot of different principles. They're going to apply more broadly than just to a son who's about to step out into the world. You know, it's fitting that we're starting this series on a day where we're celebrating graduates because this book is designed to push young men and also young women out the door of their homes into life in this world. And it's meant to give them God's perspective. It's meant to give us God's perspective on the way the world works. And so... I hope you graduates, even though some of you are going to be leaving this place and you might not be with us over the next several Sundays where we're looking at the book of Proverbs, I hope you'll take up and read. (laughs) I hope you'll take up the book of Proverbs as something that can seriously and effectively prepare you for life in the world, in the workplace, in leadership. That's what the book is designed to do in part. Now let's return to the heading here, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That phrase son of David is important. You know, it's literally true. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba, famously. Um, But when we see that phrase reading as Christians, we should have, like, flashing lights going off in our minds. Son of David. Isn't that what they call Jesus? And so I think that's intentional here. It's not just that Solomon was literally the son of David. Why 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 did he care to note that here? Everybody knew who Solomon was. He didn't have to note that he was the son of David unless... He's trying to show us that the wisdom that's reflected here has some connection to the greater Son of David to come. And so, we're going to be seeking to read the book of Proverbs messianically. The Son of David is the Messiah. And the book of Proverbs needs to be read messianically. Jesus came as one greater than Solomon. That's what he called himself in Matthew 12, 42. As one writer observes, as we think about, well, okay, how does Jesus fit in the book of Proverbs? How do we see the book of Proverbs pointing to Jesus? One writer says, Jesus is the perfect Proverbs-keeping son, who not only shuns evil, but walks in the fear of God. Everything the Proverbs commanded a young man to do, Jesus perfectly did, including cultivating a proper fear of God. Everything the Proverbs command a young man not to do, Jesus resisted with all his heart. When we go to the New Testament and we see what the New Testament writers say about Jesus in connection with wisdom, this... Uh, fact that the book of Proverbs is pointing to Jesus just gets bigger and deeper and richer. Paul says that Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, And in Colossians 2.3, Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All of them. So you want wisdom? You want knowledge? You go to Jesus and nowhere else. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Wisdom, ultimately, we're going to see comes from the Scriptures. But it also comes from the Scriptures through faith in Jesus. We see this reflected in Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that we have to get wisdom before we get saved? No, surely not. But it does show that an accompaniment of salvation is wisdom. God gives His people wisdom when you get saved. But it's not a a switch that's flipped. It's not getting zapped and suddenly you're a wise person. It takes some growth and some effort and some intentionality and some engagement, personal engagement with the Scriptures as the source of wisdom and, as Paul says, faith. Trusting in the Messiah, Jesus. So it's the Scriptures who make you wise for salvation, wise in accompaniment with your salvation through faith in Christ. So as you trust in Jesus and as you engage with the sacred writings, you grow in wisdom. So if we have Jesus, then why do we need Proverbs? We'll come back to that later. First, let's consider our need for wisdom. We are commanded in the New Testament to pursue wisdom. It's a command. So responsibility. Ephesians five fifteen. Paul says, walk as wise people. Walk as wise people. And Paul prays. So he commands us, walk as wise people, but he also prays for us in Colossians 1, 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. I hope that your aim in life is to please the Lord. And here, Paul is saying there's a means to that end. You've got to get wisdom to please the Lord. Well, how do you get wisdom? Well, here, Paul asks the Lord for it. He prays that his people would receive it, and notice that it's the Spirit who gives it. So you ask your Father to give you wisdom, and He'll answer by moving the Spirit within you to provide you with wisdom. James famously teaches us to ask God for wisdom in the context of enduring trials, enduring suffering. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, meaning if any of you lacks wisdom in how to endure a trial, how to get through a trial, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So if wisdom is received as a gift from our father and he calls us to ask him for it, why do we need the book of Proverbs? Proverbs. This is where we got to go to get it. He gives it, but he gives it here. This is the place where we find it. We'll see more about that in later chapters in this section. Let's continue here in this prologue, this introductory section of the book of Proverbs, verses two through six, where Solomon's laid out for us several purposes of Proverbs. What are they here for? What are they going to do to you? What are they going to do to you? Read it like that. What are they going to do to you if you study the book of Proverbs, what are they going to do to you? What is God going to do to you through your study of the book of Proverbs? Verses 2-6 through six tell us, and we're going to see that it's ultimately about conforming us to the image of Jesus. Conforming us to the image of Jesus. Look at verses 2-6. through six. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. We're not going to look at all the wisdom words in this passage. They'll come up in due course, and we'll get a closer look at them. He basically uh, just fires at us here all kinds of different aspects of wisdom and knowledge that the book of Proverbs offers to us. But everything is circling around a particular point in this little, long, complicated sentence from verses 2 through 6. But before we look at that heart, that central piece here, notice who's being addressed. Look at verse 5 again. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. So he addresses directly wise people, people who've already gained wisdom. So that's, that's a challenge to us. There's not going to be a point in your Christian life when you've arrived. There's not going to be a point in the Christian life where you've graduated from wisdom or from the gospel. You don't graduate. Sorry. Congratulations to all of you who've graduated from high school. But from the school of the Christian life, you will never graduate. And that's okay. Your enrollment is permanent and continual and eternal. And that's awesome. So... You don't graduate. So even if you've attained wisdom, even if you've got all the gray hair in the world and you've been walking with Jesus for decades, there's a command here to you, wise person, who's gained some wisdom in life, get more. Increase in learning. You're never going to have arrived. You're never going to have enough. There's always more to learn. And here's the reality of it all. I mean... I'm not as old as many of you in here, and I know this to be true from experience. I forget some of the good stuff that I learned. That must mean I need to learn it all over again. i got to remember what I forgot. And we all need that. But beyond that, we're talking about a God who is infinite. We're talking about a God whose wisdom is immeasurable, infinite of scope we're talking about a book inspired by the holy spirit of god that has depth that we will never get to the bottom of it that suggests that the journey needs to keep going always and forever i don't care if you've memorized the whole bible word for word that is irrelevant you need to go further and deeper and i hope I hope that your posture when you come to the Scriptures, when you're reading this book or when you're listening to preaching or when you're reading a book that's trying to help you understand the Scriptures, I hope that your posture is as a humble learner. I hope that your posture is such that you say every time you open the Bible to whatever passage, no matter how many times you've learned it, read it, studied it, no matter how much you've studied it, no matter how many times you've gone over it, I hope you come every single time with the attitude that says, there might be something here I missed. There might be something here I was wrong about. There might be something here that I stuffed in that's not actually there. There might be something here that I forgot and I need to see again. I hope that's your attitude. Every time you open the Bible, because there are, there's always more to see here. It's amazing. You've, you've, you've done this, right? <laughs> you've read the Bible you've read it over and over and over again. And then suddenly you read it again and there's something there you didn't see before. Right? That's not just me. <laughs> it happens all the time and it should because that's the way it works. So why people need to keep growing in this? Keep pursuing it. But also, the other address he is in verse 4, and it's at the other end of the spectrum at the beginning, the simple. The simple, verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. We're going to see that term repeatedly in these chapters, the simple. And now, he's, this word is kind of got a negative connotation. It's not exactly a compliment. Um, you know, we talk about being simple minded, and that's kind of the drift. The, the word literally refers to being open. And, you know, we talk about being open minded as a very good thing. But think about it kind of like this. It's the person who's empty-headed, whose head is open. It's not a compliment. It can be used as an insult. But its primary focus, and here, the idea is that he's talking to somebody who's just starting out on the journey. Young children. He's talking about someone who hasn't gotten anything. He's not presenting the picture of a human being as a blank slate, per se, but he's he's, he's telling us the truth that all of us start empty. We need to be filled. And what we're going to see repeatedly in these chapters and throughout the book of Proverbs is that there are multiple voices that are going to try to fill your head. And you know this from our world. (laughs) But basically, Proverbs is going to boil it down to two ways. There is the way of wisdom, and there's the way of folly. And the way of wisdom is going to be trying to fill your head, and the way of folly is going to be trying to fill your head. And the encouragement here. The challenge, the call, is for the simple person, the person who hasn't gotten very far in wisdom yet, the person whose mind is still empty and needs to be filled. Get wisdom. Go after wisdom. Listen to wisdom. Reject folly and listen to wisdom. Fill your head with wisdom, not folly. So, as we think about these concepts here, the book of Proverbs is meant to give you all of this stuff, all of these aspects of wisdom, but it centers around Three words in verse 3. Righteousness, justice, and equity, as the ESV translates them. Righteousness, justice, and fairness, some other translations would put it. Righteousness is referring to right character and right behavior. Right character and right behavior as defined by God's Word. Right character and right behavior. So this book, studying this book, is promising to have as an outcome, shaping you toward a person who lives rightly according to God's Word, who obeys God's Word. Justice refers to decisions that line up with God's righteousness. Justice is about protecting the vulnerable. Justice is about not showing favoritism or partiality. Justice is something that a king is supposed to discharge in the context of Israel. But for every Israelite, and ultimately for every individual among God's people, Christians, we have a responsibility as well to take care of each other, to protect the vulnerable and the weak, to look out for each other, and to pursue what is matching up with God's righteousness, not showing favoritism or partiality toward anyone for any reason. Equity. Equity, that English word has gotten bad press of late. Um, We're not talking about here in the scriptures when this word is used or any of its related words, the idea of equal outcomes for all different kinds of people. That's not the biblical perspective here. This word that's translated equity or fairness has to do with um, honesty, integrity, fairness. It's Literally, it's the word for something that's upright or straight. It's about shooting straight with people. Shooting straight in your relationships, integrity, fairness. But I don't think we're supposed to just take these words individually. I think we're supposed to see them as a package deal here. Righteousness, justice, and equity give us the big picture impact that studying the book of Proverbs should have on us. In other words, the Holy Spirit would be delighted to use this book in your life to produce these three qualities in you, to shape us by these three qualities. In other words, God's wisdom in Proverbs, when rightly applied by Christians, will conform us into the image of Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, should be fresh on your mind, sort of. We were just in the Gospel of Matthew, but the Sermon on the Mount was like ages ago, but you know these words. Matthew 5.20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew six thirty three, he commanded us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that all the things we tend to worry about will be added to us. The book of Proverbs can help us toward pursuing obedience to that, conform, being conformed to that image. But the key in all of this is given to us in verse 7. The first line, we're going to take the two lines of first 7 separately here. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. We're talking about learning to fear the Lord. Learning to fear the Lord. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Now, as we talk about the fear of the Lord, a question comes up. Who learns to fear? I mean, When I think about it, my daughter is scared at night sometimes. I didn't teach her that. She just is. And when we come into a new situation, we might feel fear. We might experience fear. Nobody teaches us that. It's just natural response. You don't typically learn to fear, but you do learn to fear the Lord. And so we need to think about that a little bit. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminds the people of the day Yahweh brought them to Mount Sinai, the day he gave them the Ten Commandments, And Moses tells the people that Yahweh told him, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Likewise, the king himself, as we mentioned earlier, was supposed to study the Mosaic law, to learn to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy 17 gives the instruction designed to shape the king's relationship with the Lord. In verses 18 and 19, the Lord says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Now, notice that phrase by keeping all the words of this law. So, What does fearing the Lord look like? It looks like obeying His word. Interestingly, there is a circular logic at play. In Deuteronomy 8, 6, Moses says, So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. So, fear the Lord by keeping His commandments and keep His commandments by fearing the Lord. Though the fear of Yahweh is something to be learned, we must learn to express our right relationship with the Lord. That's what we're boiling down, the fear of the Lord to. is what our right relationship with the Lord looks like. We have to learn how to express that. Even so, it is a gift from God. That is to say, this right relationship with the Lord is something the Lord himself initiates by his grace as a gift of the new covenant And we also must learn to grow in our practice and expression of it in our daily lives. What was the problem with Old Testament Israel? Why were the Jews sent into exile? There's lots of biblical answers to that question. But Jeremiah 2.19 says, The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Thus the solution, the restoration, must involve them getting the fear of the Lord. How? How? In Jeremiah 32, 40, the Lord himself promises, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So how can we bring this together? What's the bottom line? Consider one more text from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is gathering the people for their final message from him as he preps them to cross the Jordan River and the Lord instructs Moses to command the people to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And when they do that, every seven years, they're supposed to have the entire law read to them in one sitting. Why? Deuteronomy 31, 12 and 13 explains, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. So, the fear of the Lord shapes our obedient response to the word of God. In other words, you can't obey God's word if you don't have the fear of the Lord. So, question remains, how do you get the fear of the Lord? If it's a promise of the new covenant, we might should expect that the Holy Spirit has something to do with it. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the primary benefit promised in the new covenant. And there is an Old Testament connection between the Spirit and the fear of the Lord. And it all has to do with Jesus. Consider Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. Michael Reeves, in his very good book on the fear of the Lord, called Rejoice and Tremble, writes... Here, in Isaiah 11, 1-3, we see that the fear of the Lord is not something the Messiah wishes to be without. The Spirit who rests on Him is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, and His delight is in the fear of the Lord. The Spirit's work is to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins and draws us to God. Evidently, the fear that Christ Himself has and shares with us is the opposite of being afraid of God. Thus, whatever the fear of the Lord is in our experience, it has an emotional component, but it's not equivalent to our normal experience of fear or terror. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus delighted in fearing the Lord. Can we conceive of a joyful fear? as Reeves concludes, the spirit we are given is the spirit of the fear of the Lord who causes us to share Christ's delight in the fear of the Lord. Some have wondered whether the English word fear is helpful in the phrase the fear of the Lord. And certainly it's true in both Hebrew and Greek, the words used are the normal words used for our ordinary experience of emotional terror, dread, or fear. However, Could the phrase, fear of Yahweh, fear of the Lord, be greater than the sum of its parts? Could this unique phrase be capturing a different experience altogether? To complicate matters, it is clear that sometimes the phrase, fear of the Lord, is used to refer to abject terror. This phrase is used for non-believers confronted with God's holiness or threatened with God's wrath. Certainly, nothing short of terror is in view. But, was Jesus fearful of God's punishment? Should we Christians be? In the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is associated with other responses to God. We've seen already the connection with hearing and obeying God's word, but it is also connected with faith. Consider Exodus fourteen thirty-one. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Fearing the Lord is also connected with loving Him, in Deuteronomy ten twelve, And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And several times it is associated with worshiping or serving the Lord, as in Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve or worship Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. Note that word, hold fast to Him. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, it's not something that drives people away from Him. Fearing the Lord properly, the way we're talking about here, drives us to Him, to cling to Him, to hold on to Him, to not want to ever let go of Him. That's not being afraid of Him. That's the opposite. So what does it mean then to fear the Lord? For us, what is this prerequisite to knowledge and wisdom? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. If the Spirit gives it and we're commanded to practice it, how can we conceptualize it? It is certainly a good fear. Psychology has invented a word, and I wish theologians had invented it first. Psychology invented a word, borrowing from Greek, euphobia. You're probably familiar with euphoria and as an experience of emotional ecstasy, getting carried away with pleasure. Psychologists have then identified euphobia as a fear of good news. I would like to plunder the psychologists, as it were, and claim euphobia as instead a word that can mean a good fear. The U prefix in Greek often means good. And we're all familiar with the word phobia, as an intense and focused fear. The fear of the Lord is a euphobia, a good fear. Perhaps the experience of thrill comes close to the idea. Why do people ride roller coasters? My daughter got to ride her first big roller coaster last year at Universal Studios. I declined. I sat and read a book, and I was very happy about that. I heard after it was over from my wife who went with her that she screamed the entire time. But, She wasn't screaming in terror. Instead, she was screaming, Daddy doesn't know what he's missing! (laughs) I do know what I'm missing, and no thank you. (laughs) The thrill being sought, thrill-seeking, in a roller coaster or bungee jumping or any of those kinds of things. I don't get it. I kind of do, maybe. Could it be something like, there's a combination of doing something that's normally very dangerous yet with a confidence in certain protective measures. So it is with our relationship with the Lord. Drawing near to a holy God ordinarily would be utterly dangerous and destructive for us. But because He has satisfied His own wrath on our behalf, we are safe to come close. He's still just as holy and just as dangerous as He always was, but He has provided the ultimately effective protective measure the death of His own Son in our place. So, the question is, are you thrilled by God? When it comes to the pursuit of wisdom, are you thrilled at the idea that God defines what is true and right and good, and you don't? Are you thrilled knowing that the Spirit of God lives in you every moment of every day? Are you thrilled because Jesus died to pay for your failures, your foolishness, and your sins? Are you thrilled that the God of the universe communicates with you through the words printed on the pages of this book? You may say you are thrilled by any or all of those things, but your life will show the truth if you enthusiastically pursue obedience to the Lord and just as enthusiastically resist temptation to rebel against Him, that is where your thrill, your fear, your euphobia toward the Lord will show. Or not. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. And to consider the second half of that, the beginning of knowledge. The beginning The fundamental principle, the starting line, the first thought, the prerequisite. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you can't have true knowledge. Think about that. Knowledge. You can't have true knowledge if you don't have the fear of the Lord first. Or wisdom, for that matter. If you flip over to Proverbs 9.10 for just a second, it's phrased the more famous way, the way I think we tend to quote it. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight both wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the prerequisite, the first principle, the foundational, fundamental reality. God is the source of all true knowledge. So if we want to access that, we must have a right relationship with God, shaped by proper fear, being properly thrilled with him. Commentator Bruce Waltke says, what the alphabet is to reading, notes are to reading music, and numerals are to mathematics, The fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. Like the alphabet, like musical notes, like numbers, if you're going to press on in using those things to learn math or to learn music or to continue reading, you're always using the ABCs. You're always using those numbers. You're always using those notes. So once you learn them, you don't set them behind you. You don't leave them. You keep using them. The fear of the Lord is like that. Your right relationship with the Lord, being thrilled with Him, being... And a right posture before him is going to constantly play into your access of knowledge and wisdom. The final word here in Proverbs 7, the second line, Proverbs 1 7, and second line, to close out this introduction to the whole book, is a warning don't be a fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In the book of Proverbs, there is a progression of foolishness described. There are several characters we meet in the book of Proverbs who are labeled as fools. And our English Bibles don't tell us that sometimes they're using different Hebrew words. And we're actually dealing with different kinds of fools. Um, If you didn't see it when you came in, in the foyer out there on the table, there is a fool's handbook for you. I did not make that because I think you're all fools. I made that to help you avoid going down the path of the fool. I made that so that you might use it. So I I hope you'll pick one up, take it home, read it, study it, let it guide you as you read the book of Proverbs. You'll be able to see how foolishness is not a static reality. There is a downward slide, and you want to avoid that. And there is a point of no return on that downward slide. And you need to know that and to be warned by it. That's what this line is for here in the introduction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We can sometimes separate foolishness from sin, as though they are totally separate categories. And in a technical sense, that's true. I won't tell the whole story. I've told it in some contexts around here, I think. I often look back on my high school choice, graduating of choosing to attend Baylor University as a foolish decision. And then I also look at my choice to leave Baylor University before classes even started as also a foolish decision. I have wrestled with, at times, were those sinful choices? They were foolish, for sure, both of them. But were they sinful? Did God command me to enroll in Baylor University? No. Did God command me to leave Baylor University? No. But sin is a larger category than disobedience. If I look back at my motives, and especially the way I disregarded certain pieces of advice along the way, I'm sure I can find some sin. And besides, Jesus lumps foolishness together with sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and a bunch of other things, he says, come out of our human hearts. And then he labels all of them in Mark 7, 23, as evil things that defile a person. Foolishness is evil, and foolishness defiles. Paul calls the Galatians foolish when they were listening to false teachers who would lead them to think they could be perfected by their own efforts apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the good news. Jesus died for fools. He died to pay for our foolishness. What does this warning actually look like here? What does it mean to despise wisdom and instruction? And what will really bake your noodle is when you learn that the word translated instruction there, some of you will see this, I think, in the New American Standard if you're reading that, the word is discipline. Boy, I can think of times where I have despised discipline. Corrective discipline. Fools despise wisdom and discipline what does it look like to despise? We won't take the time to turn there, but 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, David is a model of a fool who despised the wisdom and discipline of the Lord in his sin with Bathsheba. The text describes that in 2 Samuel 12, 9 as him despising the Lord and despising the word of the Lord. That's what it looks like. So that's why you don't want to do it. Fools despise wisdom and discipline or instruction. And when you do, when you belittle, when you think that wisdom, God's wisdom, is of low value, it's not important. You know, I don't need to put forth any effort for that. It's not worth it. I've got more important things to do. I've got places to go and people to see and things to do. I don't need to invest my time, my energy, my resources in studying the Bible. Beware. Beware. That is to despise what you've been given. The conclusion in all of this is that we want to avoid this, and the book of Proverbs will help us avoid it. Let us consider, in conclusion, the fall into foolishness. Adam and Eve decided they could decide what was good and what was evil on their own. They despised God's word and listened instead to the serpent's word. In these first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, we're going to meet Lady Wisdom Who will call out to people, reflecting God's word and God's wisdom. And we're going to meet Dame Folly, who will seek to draw people away from Lady Wisdom. This is reflective of the serpent's approach to Eve. Ultimately, Adam and Eve fell and rebelled because they assessed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil differently than what God had said to them. He had said, Don't eat its fruit. And if you do eat of its fruit, you will die. Eve drew a different conclusion. Genesis 3, 6 narrates the fateful fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She saw that the fruit was edible. God said the fruit was deadly. She delighted in the fruit. She did not delight to fear the Lord. She did not delight in His words. She coveted the wisdom the tree offered, despising the wisdom God offered by keeping His commandments. The rebellion of humanity is cast in terms of a pursuit of wisdom the wrong way. Thus, not only did the human family fall into sin, becoming rebels by their choice, but they also fell into foolishness, becoming fools by their choice. Thus, Paul can quote the psalmist in characterizing every human on the planet. In Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Pastor Dan Phillips speaks of this as mankind's default setting. Until a person gets the fear of the Lord, Phillips writes, he has not even arrived at the starting line. He does not even know the ABCs of wisdom. What's the remedy? We need forgiveness for our foolishness as well as our sin. Jesus, the man wiser and greater than King Solomon, the man who embodies the eternal wisdom of God, he has given his life to provide forgiveness for us. Do you want wisdom? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Do you want wisdom? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and find the fear of the Lord. Go to Jesus and discover that you don't need to be afraid of the Lord. You have no need to be terrified by His wrath. Jesus endured His fearful wrath for you. Go to Jesus and live out the thrill, the euphobia of knowing the God of the universe. Receive the Holy Spirit who enables such euphobia. Pursue obedience to the Spirit-inspired Word of the Lord. Seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit and you will be living out the fear of the Lord. As Proverbs 16, 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of Yahweh, one turns away from evil. The Lord has provided atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation for sinners, flowing out of his loyal love and faithfulness to his promises. Likewise, he gives the fear of Yahweh to those who receive his atoning sacrifice, which then empowers forgiven sinners to repent from sin, resist temptation, and turn away from evil. Surprise! The book of Proverbs is all about Jesus. So let's look to Him as we study the first nine chapters over the next few months. Let's look to Him first for the forgiveness of our foolishness, second, for the example of embodied wisdom, and finally for the power to pursue obedience to the instruction we'll receive here. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the wisdom that you have given to us in the Scriptures. You've told us how to live. You've told us the way the world works in its broken, fallen state. And you've told us how to respond in all those kinds of circumstances that lead to temptation and sin. Help us to take it to heart. But help us to also see that you've not only told us about the problem, you've told us about the solution. You've told us about our great Savior, the one who was greater than Solomon one whose wisdom is the eternal wisdom of God. Would you help us to follow him, help us to trust him, help us to learn from him to fear you properly? Stir in each of us, I pray, the good fear, the euphobia, the thrill of knowing you, because it is meant to be a thrilling ride and it will last for eternity. We don't get off this one, and that's so good. That's so good. Thank you for loving us so richly. Thank you for giving us such a great book to shape our thinking and ultimately to shape our living. And thank you most of all for giving us your own spirit to enable us. Otherwise, these words on these pages would just stay words on the page and we would beat our head against it, frustrated always, not being able to do any of it. But that's not true. Because of the spirit, we can and we do and we will. We commit our lives to you, and we pray you would keep drawing us down the way of wisdom all the way through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.